Father, we are studying now the Word of God, which is breathed out by you. It is your Word. And because it is your Word, it is sufficient, all we need to know, that we might become Christians, and that if we are, we might grow in our knowledge and understanding of what it means to be a Christian. It is sufficient to know what it means to be at peace with God, and to have the sure and certain hope of resurrection. Teach us what that means. Because when your word is preached, the Holy Spirit takes that word and changes people. And we ask simply that you would do that today in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. The fact that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west is non-negotiable for how life on our planet is sustained The rising and setting of the sun every day is not a figment of anyone's imagination. It is non-negotiable. It is fundamental to the way our galaxy works, to the sustaining of all life on the earth. Likewise, the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is as non-negotiable as the rising and setting as the sun is in the sustaining of life in the universe as it is to the Christian faith. It is as non-negotiable as that. For if Jesus did not rise from the dead, he did not forgive our sins with his death. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we have no hope of rising from the dead to everlasting life. If Jesus said... As he did, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he lives. If he spoke figuratively, not literally, then the Christian gospel collapses into something that is infinitesimally smaller than if he rose literally and physically. So much, therefore, hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. He says this in 1 Corinthians, If Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Or later he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only. In other words, no hope of resurrection to eternal life. If in Christ... We have hope in this life only. Paul writes, We are of all people in the world to be the pitied the most. Very strong, isn't it? Very direct. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Pity. Pity you preachers, he says. Pity people like me. Pity Christians if it didn't happen because faith is a sham. Of course, Paul is absolutely right if uh, Christian faith hinges on this fact that is Jesus' resurrection from the dead, and he didn't rise from the dead, then it is a sham. Although the strength of Paul's words and his provocative statements almost are because he absolutely, with unflinching conviction, believed that Jesus did rise from the dead. And that conviction is shared by the gospel writers, not least John, who wrote this gospel eyewitnesses who saw Jesus die, who saw him raised to life. And that's the first uh, point you'll see on the sheet. 
the resurrection of Jesus is a factual event. Let me try and take you into John world, John's world. John, the writer of this gospel, he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved in the gospel. Um, he doesn't refer to himself as John, but John is the writer of the gospel. And John was there when Jesus said at the Last Supper, when he took the bread and the wine that normally they celebrated at the Passover feast, this is my body. John was there, he saw it. John was there that night when Jesus said, one of you are going to betray me. Imagine in that little room that night, the disciples' eyes would dart one from the other. Who is it? John was there with Jesus when Jesus said, come let us go. And he walked out of that little room and walked down the Kidron Valley to a garden, an olive grove called Gethsemane. John was there. And John was one of the disciples Jesus took right to the heart of the grove. John fell asleep while Jesus, in anguish, prayed to his father, yet not my will, but your will be done. John was at the edges of the temple. George was at the the, the foot of the steps where Pilate unjustly condemned Jesus. John was there. John stood at the foot of the cross of Jesus so that Jesus looked at John and said, John, look after my mother. He saw the blood drip from Jesus' hands and his feet. He saw him dying. John knew that he'd been taken to a tomb and buried. John was, as you can imagine him, with the other disciples, Peter, John, and Peter together. After Jesus had died, what they'd be feeling, they weren't thinking Jesus was going to rise from the dead because they're like us. They didn't expect it. And in the middle of their grief, just about sunrise, maybe they were sleeping, Mary bursts in to where they are and said that they've taken our Lord. John and Peter run back to the tomb. And then they meet Jesus, risen from the dead. And then they encounter Jesus again and again in the next 40 days or so. And then John goes out and spends his life telling people that Jesus is alive. He gets a wonderful revelation at the end of the Bible about the future. John says, I better write this stuff down. He writes revelation, he writes his gospel so that we might have certainty like him. That's the real world of how this gospel book came to be written. The resurrection of Jesus is a factual event. The famous fictional detective Sherlock Holmes, and I guess you'll know this, um, said this kind of thing all the time. However illogical, whatever your theory suggests, base your conclusions on the facts. No, I warrant that if you're not a Christian, it is implausible to suggest that someone can be raised from death to life. But John, the writer of this gospel, this eyewitness, wants us to consider the facts. 
And it's helpful, I think, to remember, as I said, that the disciples, his closer companions, people like John, the writer of this gospel, Peter, Thomas, and the others, they struggled at first to believe. They're not in here as as kind of parodies of slowness. They're just reality, normal human beings who struggle to believe that Jesus could rise from the dead. They were hiding away and fearful of the future, thinking the whole enterprise was over, and them as well. It was the resurrection of Jesus as unbelievable for them as it was for us. And it's not something they would make up. They came to believe based on the facts. So consider the facts as John, the eyewitness, reports them. Chapter 19 records the death and the burial of Jesus. Lots of uh, people would suggest that Jesus didn't die. I think that's a, that's a fair way of explaining his resurrection. If he didn't die, he didn't rise from the dead, he just recovered consciousness. Now, there are all sorts of facts that stack up against that, not least that Roman execution squads were ruthlessly efficient at what they did. Jesus was dead. He was buried. And then chapter 20, verse 1, as we read, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. A new day is dawning. But it's still dark. Symbolic, I think, in John's gospel of the darkness that still shrouded Mary and the disciples. What does Mary do when she sees the stone taken away from the tomb. Does she start singing, see what a morning, gloriously bright? She thinks what you and I would have thought, that someone had stolen the body. Grave robbers, Birkin hair of the ancient world. That's what she thought, logically so. And she immediately runs to tell Peter and John what has happened. John is the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, as I said in verse 2, the writer of the gospel. She comes to Peter and John out of breath and anguish, and she pours out her heart to them. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. You can just feel our human emotion. Not only has Jesus, whom she loved, died, but his body has been taken. One of the hardest things, apparently, for someone who is a relative of someone, for example, who has been lost at sea, is the absence of a body. He's stolen his body. Now, these are not the kind of fictitious details one makes up. Peter and John run to the tomb, and John gets there first. Uh, Some commentators suggest that John, the writer, is making the point that John, representative of Gentile Christianity, is first on the scene. Peter, representative of Jewish Christianity, some way behind. Now, not to appear irreverent, I think that's a, well, might be true. There's always the danger that someone in the church has written a PhD on that precise point. I don't think it's true, though. I think it's just that John was a faster runner than Peter. It's eyewitness testimony. It's just stuff. John, though, is a humble man, Because when he arrived, he said he's too scared to go in. 
Peter, when he arrives, puffed and out of breath a few minutes later, just barges John out the way and straight in he goes. What did they see? They saw Jesus' burial clothes lying there. Again, the details are striking. Verse 6, he, Peter, saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloths which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with a linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. There his burial shroud is lying on the, the stone that would be inside the tomb. And the cloth that covered his face, neatly folded up and lying beside the grave clothes. It must have been a very unnerving sight. Whatever else had put paid to the grave robber's idea. Let me just remind us that this is eyewitness testimony. If this seems unbelievable to you, what you need to do is discount that what John wrote was true. He made it up. That's the option, really, available to us. The rest of John 20 records the facts of what happened next. Verses 11 to 18, the risen Jesus meets Mary Magdalene in the garden outside the tomb. It's astonishingly real, isn't it, the scene? She sees this man, Jesus. She doesn't recognize him because there's not a vestige in her heart still that thinks he could have risen from the dead. She thinks he's the gardener. And he says, Mary. And the light dawns. And then the risen Jesus meets with the disciples. And he shows them his hands and his side. What a sight that must have been. The last time the disciples had seen him, i.e. talked with him in the little room when they ate the Passover meal, Jesus had said, this is my body. It's going to be broken for you. This is the blood that's going to be shed for me. And now they see the risen Christ and they see the holes in his hands. What a sight it must have been that night. And then Thomas, who wasn't there, said, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into them and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Jesus said to him, verse 37, Thomas, put your fingers here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And so, John, John's claim, at least, is based on what he saw, the resurrection of Jesus is a factual event. The disciples, initially at least, were convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead, not because they were expecting it, not because it fitted with their theological understanding, not because the Bible said in the Old Testament that he would, but because they saw it. Just listen to the flavor of the way John writes. Verse 1, Mary saw. Verse 6, Peter saw. Verse 8, John saw. 12, Mary saw. Verse 18, Mary, I have seen. Verse 20, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Verse 25, we have seen the Lord. Now, if you're not a Christian, 
I want you to understand that these gospel books purport to be eyewitness testimonies. They purport to write historical fact. And so to reject Christianity, you need to say that this stuff is made up. It's not correct in that it reports historical fact. That's what it purports to do. And if you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you at least to give time to consider in detail these gospel books that purport to be historical fact, even on the basis that it's worth taking the time to convince yourself that it's not true, if that is your starting point. Take the time, in case it might be true. And of course, if Jesus did rise from the dead, if Jesus is God, then it really raises the stakes, doesn't it? To listen to what he says. Don't discount him on the basis of some kind of view that you might have picked up, that this is kind of theoretical stuff. It doesn't write like that. It writes to be factual. So consider it, at least, and then say no or yes. Now, secondly, the resurrection proves that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What is the significance and the relevance of the resurrection? Well, John answers that question, and I've tried to summarize it there. The resurrection of Jesus is personal and brings us peace with God. Firstly, the resurrection proves that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Look with me at verses 30 and 31. They're the last two verses in the chapter. They read, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Signs means miracles. And Jesus did lots of miracles. Why did he perform miracles? To establish his identity. If you or I could do things like turn water into wine at a wedding... Or if you and I could raise somebody from death to life, or cure the incurable, or be raised from death to life, then if you and I spoke, people would listen. Jesus performed these miracles so that people would listen. Because he is God. And the greatest of all signs, the greatest miracle of all is his own resurrection for that definitively proves that he is the Christ and the Son of God. Jesus, John writes, did many signs, but these signs, not least, and principally the resurrection, are recorded in my book, my eyewitness testimony, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. What does it mean that he is the Christ? Well, It means that he is the Messiah, the rescuer sent by God to humanity to forgive their sins. 
What does it mean that he is the Son of God? That he is the authority and the ability to perform that rescue through his sacrificial death. But why should we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? What does it matter to me? Well, let me speak personally as a Christian, why it matters so much to me. And that'll be the testimony of many of us here, but not all of us. And of course, for those of us here who are Christians, there was a time in our life when it didn't matter to us. Why does it matter to me that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, because to me, without a Messiah, without a Rescuer, without a Savior, I am all at sea, unforgiven, and not at peace with God, dying to an eternal death under God's judgment. How do I know that? Because Jesus, whom I believe the evidence unequivocally points to the fact that he is God, says that about me. It's not that I have a feeling that I am under God's judgment. I know I'm a sinful person. We all know that. Nobody disputes that. But I know I'm all at sea without Jesus as my rescuer because Jesus says that. That's the point. What on earth gives him the authority to say that? Jesus performed many signs that are not recorded in this book, but these signs are recorded that you may believe that he is the Christ and the Son of God and that you may have life in his name. It's striking too, and this is another reason it matters to me, how personal the resurrection of Jesus is. My life to me is precious to me. The life of those closest to me is precious to me. Your lives are precious to me as your minister. My death is important to me. Your deaths are important to me and those I love. It matters that Jesus is a personal saviour to me and to you. So what does Mary say outside the tomb? She says to Jesus, the angels rather say to her, woman, why are you weeping? I mean, that's a kind of a daft question, isn't it? from the all-knowing angel, because they have taken away my, my Lord, my Jesus. She felt his death personally. And what's about to happen, wonderfully, is she will feel his resurrection personally. Just think of the impact on Mary when Jesus said to her, Mary, And a light dawned in her heart. Mary were his words to her. Not first person ever to see the risen Lord Jesus, or first person ever to get a sight of eternity, which she was. She was the first person to see the risen Christ, the first person to get a glimpse of all eternity for those who believe. What did he say to her? Mary. 
He spoke intimately and personally to her. All that he had said is true. He is risen. He is the resurrection and the life. And with raw, real, sincere, personal emotion, she clung on to him. Jesus said, Do not cling on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brothers. Not go to the disciples. Not go to those who stood with me and then deserted me. Not go to the apostles, but go to who? My brothers. For I am ascending to my Father and yours. To my God and yours. The language of the resurrected Jesus on day one is family language. One of the wonderful things about weddings, I was saying this to each of the couples being married this week, is that never again will all these people be in the room at the same time. What matters to me is being part of a loving family. What matters to me even more than that is being part of this family. My father and yours. My God and yours. Mary. Tell my brothers. It's personal. Here's a phrase that's often used in Christian circles. Have you had a personal encounter with Jesus? Or variants like, being a Christian means having a personal relationship with Jesus. I've never really understood what these things mean. It's kind of stuff you say, isn't it? After all, I cannot have a personal encounter in the way that Mary did or the disciples, for Jesus is not here. He is in glory. So what does it mean for us to have a personal encounter or a personal relationship with Jesus? Well, this is what I think it means. It means that you believe in Jesus, not as the Savior of humanity, which he is, nor even as the Son of God, which he is, but as your Savior and your Lord, your brother, your shepherd. You know him personally, not in a soft way, but in a real personal way. Let me come at it another way. When we speak of Jesus dying for our sins, a Christian understands, realizes what it means personally. So if you stand and recite the Apostles' Creed, Jesus died for our sins. To have a personal relationship with Jesus is you read these words and you read into them, Jesus died for my sins. We understand the weight of it. When we read the bit of the Apostles' Creed, on the third day he rose again, the Christian's mind, if they're really brave, goes to their funeral and knows that I will rise again. Because he was raised. That's what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's not reciting a creed. It's believing it with all your heart. And it gives us two things, peace and life, not life and peace. It's peace and life in John. And it's right that way around, isn't it? Peace and life. What does the peace of God mean? There's another phrase that Christians often use. Peace be with you. What does it mean? 
there's a world of a difference between me saying to you, Jesse, peace be with you, and the Lord Jesus saying to us, peace be with you. What does it mean, peace be with you? It means, forgiven sinner who has believed in me, you are no longer under the judgment of a holy God. You're at peace with that God. So were you to meet him now, face to face, God, all is well. The bridge between humanity and God is rebuilt through the cross. Peace with God. You know that old, uh, not old, Christmas carol we sing. Hark the herald angels sing. I'd love to have it at my funeral. It's a bit out of place at a funeral, but it's a great hymn. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. A resurrection hymn. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. That's peace with God. To the Prince of Peace. Reconciliation to God. And therefore, if you have made peace with God, you can have what? Life in his name. Whose name? Jesus' name. What kind of life? Life in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And resurrection life in his name because Jesus was raised. You will be raised. And where will you reign? With him in eternity forever. Life in his name. Brokered because you have peace with God. Brokered because the Prince of Peace died that you might have peace with God. That's what these words mean. Peace with God. Life in his name. For, and the wee sting in John's tail, whoever believes in me, got to believe in him. It's not a lot, though, I think, reasonably, that the Lord Jesus asks us to do, to believe in him. To believe that he did it for me. And that it's true, and he lives, and we'll live. Believe in me. But he's gracious to us. Gives us time. He's kind to Thomas, wasn't he? If you really want it, Thomas, stick your fingers. I don't think Thomas ever did it. But Jesus was willing to let him. And finally, the resurrection is a message that needs to be shared. It's kind of a double thing going on in these chapters in John's Gospel. As much as Jesus is concerned that Mary and the disciples come to understand and believe in him, he wants to commission them to go and tell the glorious news that Christ is risen. And so he says to Mary, verse 17, it's a very visceral, raw, human moment, isn't it? She clings on to him. Um, she, she, uh, we had a picture up in the first service, whether it's true or not. We had a picture of an angel. It was nothing like an angel. I don't know what an angel looks like. It didn't look like that. A picture of Mary just on her knees almost at the feet of Jesus, holding on to him. That's probably right. Jesus says to her, Mary, don't hold on to me. I, I've not yet gone back to my father. He's saying something really deep and meaningful there about his resurrection body. But really he says to her, Mary, come on, come on, let go, let go. Go and tell them. Go and tell the disciples. Go and tell them. She's the first evangelist. Go and tell them. So she goes to tell them. And then later, when he meets with the disciples, what does he say to them? Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you, peace be with you. You're now reconciled to God. Get that clear in your hearts and minds. As the Father has sent me into the world to bring you peace, so I am sending you into the world to do what? 
to preach the gospel that men and women and young people and boys and girls might find peace with God. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. You get a mini Pentecost, a kind of little puff of the Holy Spirit here that they might go and tell. And in obedience to Jesus' command, what do they do? Verse 25, they go to Thomas. What do they say to Thomas? What do they say? We have seen the Lord. What did the disciples do who became apostles, John and the others, all through the early years of the church? They stood up in street corners. They stood in synagogues. They went on boats. They went on journeys and said, we have seen the Lord. He's alive. The New Testament is dominated as much by the resurrection as the cross. Peter's great Pentecost sermon on the birthday of the church is on the resurrection. He's alive. And then, when John became an old man, what did he do? He wrote a book called John's Gospel. And he wrote down in this book, as we saw in chapter 20, we have seen the Lord. That's what he wrote. We have seen the Lord. Let me tell you what we saw. John wrote that book, John's Gospel, under the inspiration of God. How do you know that? Well, I get to know it as a preacher, particularly as I get longer in the tooth as a preacher. I've been at this for, what, 10 or 15 years now? How do you know this book is inspired by God? Because when I read it with people, they become Christians. It's not because I'm persuasive, or I've got answers to their questions, or I've got the gift of the gab. It's this book is God's Word. It's like we were with the apostles, telling us firsthand. It's their testimony, inspired by God, used by God to lead people to faith in Jesus. When the Bible is preached or taught or read, people encounter the living Jesus and trust him as their Savior and their Lord. Now, two practical applications as we close. These are copies of uh, Luke's Gospel, one of the Gospels. You could take John. Normally, at the end of a service like this, I'd say to you, if you're not a Christian, take one of these and read it. You're welcome. Or if you're not a Christian and you've come as a guest today, take one of our Bibles. Take 20. Take them all. Let me say to you, if you are a Christian, though, take one of these and read it with someone who's not. Because when you read this with them, have the confidence that you read the inspired, authoritative Word of God that takes you almost, or as it were, to the feet of the Apostle John who saw this and believe you me, when you read this with people, they'll become Christians. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this uh, very powerful chapter in your word. We thank you that the evidence is so strong that this man is the Christ and God. Help us, Lord, if we're interested but not yet sure that help us to wrestle with the evidence, to make up our own minds. Help us not to ignore it or accept some theory that it's just made up. It doesn't read like that. Take us, Lord, into the evidence to discover who Jesus is and that we can have life and peace in his name. And it's personal and real and powerful and answers the deepest questions of life and death. Help us to share this great message. We pray for those who share it all over the world, those who do so at risk of life. Help us to share it here, Lord, in a culture that's not like that, but it's not easy here. Help us to be bold and courageous. For it is a wonderful, wonderful message to share. But Lord, the close of our prayer is that this would be personal to each of us in this room. Mary, Jesus said, go and tell my brothers about my father and your father. about my Lord and your Lord. Make it real, personal, and life-changing for every one of us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.